This is an SM Media production. Hi folks and welcome to the debut episode of this season of The Rewind right here on SM Media. I'm Scott Pike. It's an absolute pleasure to be your host as always on the channel as we pilot this new show and see where we are in terms of looking back on the history of certain subjects in Scottish football. We will start the first episode by talking about the infamous dream team at Celtic. What happened in the summer of 1999 when Alan McDonald, the Celtic chief executive who had been promoted to his new position, brought in Kenny Dalglish to be the director of football and John Barnes as the new head coach. It was a fascinating period in Celtic history. To join me on this part of the Rewind, we are joined by From the Celtic Way, Anthony Haggerty. Anthony, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you on to the show. Thank you very much for joining me. Ah, the pleasure's mine, Scott. How are you doing? I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm all good, yeah. It's a fascinating period to look back on and it's... (laughs) Again, it's like you look back at kind of parallels with the kind of modern day. Like this is a, this is something you can see quite a bit. Kind of in the, like inexperienced managers coming in, and it just doesn't at times doesn't work out. It's happened at both Rangers and Celtic in recent years. But this whole period is just kind of a weird one, isn't it? It's just the, the club was in desperate need of a kind of progression into the twenty first century. Was that fair to say? Oh, very much so, and uh, you know the. It was real turmoil at the club at, at that point. You know, they, they'd gone from the high of stopping Rangers' attempts at 10 in a row and losing their manager within like 24 hours of that title win. And Vim Janssen with the, with the escape clause and all that that had been revealed in his contract. And it just everything came crashing down round about them. And then Rangers brought in the Dick Advocat and were, you know, overseeing some real spending in Scottish football to yeah. take it to a different level and just accelerating away and Celtic were kind of left in that slipstream so as you say they, they, they had to do something but I think when you unveil John Barnes and Kenny Dalglish as the managerial dream team you know you're, you're setting a, a high bar there and you're, you're setting them up to fail really aren't you it's kind of it, it's putting anybody out there as some kind of dream team, you know, they, they, they were two high-profile, wonderful football figures in British football. And I think on, on the balance and on paper, everybody thought this would be a right good appointment. But you you have to say, you mentioned it there, Celtic had tried with a rookie manager in Liam Brady yeah. like five or four or five years previously, and, and that didn't work. So history should have told you that you know, something nagging in the back of your mind. You you go for a tried and tested, especially when Rangers had recruited someone like Dick Advocat, which was seen as a wonderful coup for them, and it was at that time. And in comes John Barnes, who's never coached a football team in his life, yeah. along with Kenny Dalglish, who, yeah, he'd led Blackburn to the title and all that, but everybody said, well, he was backed by Jack Walker's millions. Yeah, he was. You know, can he manage? Well, you didn't really know, but... These were the guys that were trusted to take on a Rangers team who's, you know, if you're talking about a career trajectory, was on the rise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing with that as well is, obviously, 
the famous thing with kind of Wim Janssen and Jock Brown and Fergus McCann, it just was a bit of a, it was, I mean, Fergus McCann had said if, if he wasn't leaving, I was going to sack him anyway. That's a man who's just stopped winning the title. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's unbelievable. And then Dr. Joe, I don't think that was ever a long-term project. I think that was just basically bring somebody in for a year and then kind of get the project. Because Fergus, at this point, I think Fergus had always planned for five years. Yeah. So was- after 99, he was keen to, Stock back experiment was Dr. Joe, but Dr. Joe came in because he had a, a right good CV. Yeah. And they felt that maybe somebody with that experience could turn Celtic round. And, you know, Dr. Joe had his moments. He had a 5 1 1 against Rangers. Uh, brought in Lubomir Maravchik, you know, who was a fantastic footballer. Yeah. Celtic and, you know, and, and a fantastic footballer in, in Scottish football. So, and I, but I think by the end of that year, Dr. Joe had, had enough. He, he was just, because he came out <coughs> when he was 62. Had they got him in when he was younger, he might have been able to do something. Yeah. But, you know, again, there was there was real turmoil there, wasn't there? And how you can take something so good and shattering Rangers attempt at 10 and turn it into something so bad for a couple of years, only Celtic, I think, could do that. You know, mm-hmm. the club has previous for uh, taking the badness out of something great, you know. Yeah. But, uh, that's what happens. Alan McDonald comes in as a newly appointed chief executive. Obviously, in the summer of '99, Fergus McCann had left, and kind of Dermot Desmond had took over his shares and things like that. Did you know much about Alan McDonald? And obviously, he's from here, where I'm from. I knew I know a bit about him, but what was the kind of impression at the time when he was appointed the chief executive? I don't think many people were too impressed. What did a man from BAE know about Celtic? Mm-hmm. You no know, one was he brought in just because of the company he kept. We, we spoke about it off here, <laughs> or just because he played, he played a good game of golf <laughs> with a few people who <laughs> are a bit prevalent to this day. Because I know Dermot Desmond loves his golf, doesn't he? So, yeah, yeah. You know, a, a lot of deals are stuck on the golf course. You know, so but I, I think it, it was a left field appointment as CEO. Let's let's be honest. But most CEOs tend to be left field, don't they? If they're yeah. not promoted from within, they're kind of left field, and they come from a background which is not norm- normally associated with football. But CEOs, you'll, you'll never want to hear CEOs when they're announcing the figures mm-hmm. or, or at the AGM. If they stay quiet and let the football side of the business take care of itself, then you, you're quite perfectly happy with your CEO. But when they start to become personalities and say stuff, and I'm not not saying that Alan McDonald's particularly guilty of that, but sometimes it's the, the kudos of being the CEO of a football club that no drives these guys, especially a club like Celtic, world renowned. Yeah. McDonald, obviously, I think it's fair to say, was a bit of a, a golf chum of Kenny Dalglish. And Dalglish, I think, was, I think he'd, he'd got to the stage, I think Blackburn had kind of revitalised his, his love of football. I think yeah. Liverpool, he's, he's, I think it just became too too hard for him personally. But Newcastle, he didn't have a great spell. Obviously, Barnes was there as a coach and Was it fair to say that I think McDonald wanted him as manager, Douglas? And then the kind of compromise was bringing Barnes in and kind of Douglas would oversee him? Yeah. I mean, that's the... I mean, I did a big interview with John Barnes in the Celtic way and he said that the only ally he had when he turned up at Celtic was Kenny Douglas Mm -hmm. because Alan McDonald and the board were very sceptical of his appointment. They they thought it was a high-risk appointment, which he would. As alluded to earlier, he was a rookie manager. He had yeah. a football team in his life. So, and <clears throat> John Barnsley, a strange thing, he said that he spoke to Sheffield United and he spoke to Celtic 
and the only offer that he had on the table for his first managerial job in football was Celtic. Yeah. That's Crazy. astonishing. Yeah. That's absolutely astonishing, Scott. Mm-hmm. If your first managerial job in football and that offers from Celtic, I mean, a different time, I guess, but it wouldn't happen now. But, I mean, that's quite an incredible thing for John Barnes to say, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And it's, it's, it's that thing as well. I think the... I think it was McDonald was desperate to have the leash there, and I think is it fair to say maybe a, a kind of fanboy thing of like bringing a legend back who had obviously had his time at Liverpool, but people forget like the leash was was the leash not employed with Rangers at this point as well. Like it was, it's a weird one. It's like it's a it's a weird one to think like the leash was. I'm sure he was a scout, like a South American scout or something for Rangers to yeah. go from that to then be the Celtic director of football in the space of two years. Like, I don't think I think Douglas is one of the very few who could get away with that. To be honest, oh, very much so. Yeah, Ken Douglas has revealed that Celtic. Mm-hmm. It just reveals to what he did as a player. He was a, a ten out of ten player every day of the week as a manager and a coach. Uh, I think that leaves a lot to be desired, as we'll talk about during this time. But you know, as a player, you cannot hold a candle to. No. So he still he still had a lot of credit in the bank with Celtic supporters, despite the fact that he had kind of taken on this role with Rangers, as you say. But how much he actually did for Rangers was kind of anybody's guess because it was yeah. never, never really elaborated on or expanded upon, was it? So no. But like you think about like Dalglish, and I think he still got the reputation at this point as an astute operator. He'd, he brought in some terrific players at Blackburn. I think he, I think that goes under the. I know he, he was backed very much so by Jack Walker, but he signed some great players in that time for relatively low money. But there was scepticism in the by the support with the, the rookie manager. But McDonald defended that by the infamous quote of "I have a rather large insurance policy." And Kenny Dalglish did that <laughs> kind of lay lay the kind of scepticism with the support at the time of like even McDonald is saying like if this goes wrong, basically Kenny's there. Kind of thing. That's what it feels like. That's what you look at and that's what you read into that and think like, if this goes wrong, blame Kenny, not me. <laughs> How do you feel if you're John Barnes? I know. That's an, I know. And he said that at the AGM, didn't he? And that, that's a total, I think that Barnes has said since that he felt that that was a total undermining of his con- confidence, you know, and what he could bring to the table and he got the feeling that they were just kind of putting up with a uh, John Barnes because Kenny wanted him there and I think even John Barnes used the words I'm nobody's puppet I wasn't yeah. a puppet manager I'm going in there to be my own man but from from the get-go and from day one when he was unveiled that's what he was fighting against he was fighting against that board and particularly Alan McDonald who was like well I, I wanted this guy but you've you've had to come along as well on the yeah. say on the say so of Kenny the leash you know so and I think that's a really I mean See, with it, if you're within your rights, if you're John Barnes, you should probably have walked away then and said, you know what, this is not for me. If this is the way you're going to treat me, and I think that, I think, but you believe as a football manager, or you think you can make a difference, don't you? Mm-hmm. Regardless if the odds are stacked against you, and they were stacked against them heavily. Rangers had a good team; they were spending money like it was going out of fashion. But you say to yourself, if I can implement my ideas, fine. But with the board not entirely sure about you, you know, alarm bells should be ringing, shouldn't they? Yeah, and it's absolutely, and that's the thing. And like, he does have a he does have a way. He wants to play that infamous four two 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 formation, but you kind of think about that and you think like, 
obviously we'll touch on his signings in a minute, but the first thing that screams out to me is that is a lot. If you're going to play this two-two-two with no width, your fullbacks are going to be in for a hell of a shift every <laughs> game. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's a, it's a really inventive way of playing, but does it work in Scottish football? Even then, I think that would have been my scepticism with it. I don't think he needed it in Scottish football, but it was a kind of, as you say, it was a, it was a refreshing change to yeah. what Scottish football had been used to, and probably a lot of teams now are maybe not so much adopting the four-two-two-two, but some of the ideas that John Barnes was yeah. coming up with, I think, in, in that sense, he was revolutionary and ahead of his time, possibly, but maybe just the way you see football played now, but. He just made a big deal about it, didn't he? Mm-hmm. A big deal was made of it on his behalf, and you know, he, he kind of tied himself in knots with it, the whole 4-2-2-2 formation. And I, I I I admire the fact that he tried something new, but as you say, probably wasn't needed in Scottish football. But probably you look at it now and you think he was on to something back then. Mm-hmm. But I guess yeah, you know, football supporters' capabilities and sensibilities. It just wasn't for them, so it was heavily criticised. Whereas now it's it's more normal to see teams adopt maybe a full two 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 or yeah. any kind of variation on a similar theme. And as you say, your fullbacks are in for a hell of a shift. But now you just need to look at fullbacks playing inverted, all that kind of stuff. So I think the nub of an idea was there, Scott, tactically with John yeah. Barnes, but I guess that the the actual execution of the idea was maybe not as refined as it possibly could have been but he was certainly uh, I think uh, tactically he was a wee bit ahead of his time in that sense. Yeah he absolutely was and that's that's the thing you mentioned there about obviously fullbacks it's, it's a modern day thing now fullbacks pushing forward but at the time it was perceived as this massive yeah. kind of risk and you think about the kind of way obviously the two up front were going to be Larson and Viduka and Maravchik was going to be kind of in the but Craig Burley was was mentioned as being a holding midfielder. Now, Craig Burley's a terrific player. Craig Burley is not a holding midfielder. No, and Craig Burley will tell you that himself. Yes. That's, uh, that led to kind of unrest with John Barnes, and Craig Burley was particularly vociferous as a person, as a player, and as a, uh, as a pundit. Yes. Which he has now, you know. So that was never going to align well with the two of them. I mean, you have such an important player like Craig Burley and what he brought to the table. He was, he was never a, an anchor midfielder, was he? And he was so important to the Celtic teams before that. Like he was player of the year a couple of years before. Correct. You know, and the glue that was holding everything together was Larson and Lambert. Mm-hmm. And the common denominator amongst them was they were two of the highest paid players at the club. Yes. They, they were happy. But players started to kind of find out what they were on, what the Rangers players were on, and there's all sorts of murmurings of discontent. And when you have that in a dressing, you have a powerful voice like Burley, allied to guys like Viduka, mm-hmm. who, you know, who was a, an important player for Celtic then and felt that that wasn't a commensurate in his worth, you know, the, the financial uh, com- compensation that he was getting. So, mm-hmm. you know, when for all that bubbling away, John Barnes is dealing with that and in any dressing, you're dealing with fragile egos and personalities at times. And for any kind of manager with experience, that would be difficult enough. But John Barnes, this is John Barnes' first job, and he's walked into this dressing room where it's really, really fractured, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Not, no one's denying or doubting Celtic players in that team had ability. But when you start off from the base level of 
there's such a disparity in wages with certain key players. It's only going to go one way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think a big thing for Celtic at this point as well is that Barnes gets heavily backed, and I think that's a big point as well because the years before, famously with Fergus, I mean, Fergus McCann gets booed for not spending money, and there was this, there was this myth of Celtic were tight with money, Celtic wouldn't spend money, but this summer they do spend a, spend a lot. They set the, the Scottish transfer record by Niall Berkovic, yeah. a, wee, a gem in there in Stallion Petrov, he likes a Tbilly shite later on we'll talk about who was what we just said there's this there's this thing of we with Celtic at this point of the one the the biscuit tin model that was yeah the myth was still there but Larson gets a new contract and Celtic that that was a bit would that have been a big turning point for the fans at this point that there is ambition there and they're beginning to spend the money I think there was ambition in, in bearing in mind the backdrop of this is they're looking at Rangers yeah We've tried to, you know, and said it when he came in that, you know, you build a team, but you don't want to look over at your neighbour's garden. Mm-hmm. We're constantly looking over the neighbour's or the fence to their neighbour's garden, and that was the problem. So they had to be seen to be keeping up with the Joneses, as they say, or keeping up with Rangers, mm-hmm. and who were just, you know, they, they were just right. We were competing in all fronts with clubs in Europe for, for players. So, yeah, so signing, re signing Larson on a good deal was. Great piece of business. You no, know, you've got a Champions League winner and Paul Lambert in the team. Yeah. Get him a good, you've got him in a good deal as well. And then, as you say, they, they started to splash the cash on players. I mean, the diamond and all that rough being Stalin Petrov. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people can say what they like about John Barber, but he did bring in Stalin Petrov. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Petrov went on to be a tremendous servant for Celtic. John Barnes didn't see the best of him, but I think John Barnes can afford himself a rice smile and say, well, I brought him. Yeah, and Berkovic was a big signing at the time as well. Berkovic was a huge signing as well. And again, another one of those right player, wrong time. I think that's fair, yeah. I think think Anil would go. John Collins is another one, that would say. Right player, wrong time. But Berkovic was a talented, talented footballer, as he showed those two goals at Ibrox and the the 4-2 defeat, ultimately. But Mm -hmm. Lambert gets his face smashed in, teeth and... All that, you know, and they, they were without him for a while after that. But Berkovic was a, a really good footballer, but another one who had a, a strong voice. And, uh, you know, you just say to yourself, well, you know, the Celtic at that point were a splintered and fractured team of individuals, not a team. Yeah. You know, they'd, they'd sublime talent in lots of positions, but it, there was just no cohesiveness about them or, or unity about them. And that kind of showed, and guys like Tabuli, I mean, everybody, you know, they, you, you get players like this that come in and they're a cult hero for all the wrong reasons, you know. Yeah. Really wasn't a great defender, but, you know, the Celtic took a chance, and then Raphael, you know, who who wasn't signed on Barnes, say, so he was brought in to show as a statement of intent by Celtic, six million quid, and the whole kind of, they watched them on DVDs and stuff. Yeah. Scott, I'm sure you and I could be made to look good in a football park with your greatest hits, you know, and if you sign them on the back of that. But Barnes, when I spoke to him in that interview, said, look, I was asked my thoughts, and I said, if that's what Celtic want to do, fine. Because the, the big thing was that they, they were going and signing a Brazilian was, was a statement of intent. Wasn't Raphael's fault that it turned out, you know, they 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 premised it on the fact that he was a Brazilian international, but I think it was under twenty three and he played in the Olympic team or something. Is that right? Like, yeah, I think it was one game. Yeah. yeah, you know, so and that they, they're all there's 
there's extenuating circumstances for this period in Celtic's history, which you're only starting to learn more about now, mm-hmm. as opposed to back then when everything was just the 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 blame was laying solely at the feet of John Barnes. And was there a was there a thing as well? The the start of the season's brilliant, nine wins for yeah. eleven games, but Rangers, as you mentioned, that four two game, Rangers Celtic go two one up, but Rangers just kind of turned it on in the second half, helped mm. with that penalty, obviously. But was there still this positivity that this was a kind of strong start? Because it, I mean, nine wins from eleven games. I mean, that's that's really good form. Oh yeah, I mean, and they were playing some stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. in in John Barnes' reign, they battered Aberdeen five 0 six 0 and seven 0 Yeah. Right, so for every young, there's a young, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But they, they were playing some good football, they were scoring some goals, but it was the games that mattered that they just fell short on. Yeah. That's no slight on John Barnes because lots of people fall, fell short on those games. Tommy Burns' team in particular played wonderful football, entertaining mm-hmm. Celtic for Celtic fans. Still talk about Tommy Burns' team, but they came up short against mm-hmm. Rangers, who just at that period in, in, in history during the 90s, had better team and had better players because they were spending a lot of money. Mm. And and it and you know it tends to work out that way, doesn't it? If you get if you get the most money, you buy the better players, you end up being the better team. And Celtic were getting their crawl, you know, clawing it back slowly but surely, but just not at that stage. They they could lay a glove on them, but not land a knockout blow. Mm-hmm. And Rangers always kept them at arm's length. Yeah, and there's a there's an interesting point as well. I want to get your thoughts on. You're probably the, a, a really good person to ask about this. Like the press, I don't think the press ever took to him from the from the get go. What do you think? What do you think was the kind of reason for that? Would you think it was more that that's kind of outsider who hadn't been in Scottish football, or was it more because it, the the impression was never there that Barnes kind of he wasn't. Although he's became a very outspoken person in recent years, like at the time, he wasn't given. He didn't really give the media much, and we know in Scottish football, if you don't do that, you don't really last long. I I think uh, he he never played the game. Let's put it that way. He mm. was, he was uh, accused of being aloof and introverted, and as you say, he didn't give the media much. I mean, he he since denied that, but I think it's hard. You know, when you when you're parachuted in and you're propelled into this. You know, the goldfish bowl or this vortex, swirling vortex of two Glasgow clubs who are only ever going to win the league. You know, finishing second is not an option, it's failure. Yeah. You know, and your every move, your every word, everything that you do is scrutinised to the nth degree. I don't think Barnes quite caught what it meant it, it, when he walked in and just gets stuck in that maelstrom that surrounds it, the media being part of it as well. And I don't know, I mean, I'm sure he'd spoken to Kenny Dalgleishan, but I'm not sure if guys like Kenny Dalgleishan and Alan McDonald prepared them. No. No, fully for what he was walking into. Because it's, uh, you know, and he, and he sees himself, he, he is quite an extroverted guy, and but he came across and that was the image that he portrayed. And he, and he did get a, a bad rap and a bad jam because of that uh, press-wise. You know, and, and I think when... When you start from day one and the people that you are employing you don't trust you, that gets your heckles up, doesn't it? Yeah. And then you you have a, a distrust of everything and, and, and everyone. And then when the media are firing questions at you and why are you doing this and why, you, you know, you, you, you then there's that kind of unhealthy mistrust of everybody, you know. And and 
I remember John Byrne saying to me as well that he phoned his, I think his wife at the time or his then girlfriend and said, don't, don't move house. This ain't going to last long. That was not long into his tenure and that, mm-hmm. and he said that to his partner at the time. I think it was his wife. I, I'll need to check back, but whoever was his partner, he, he advised him not to move to Scotland because he didn't see it lasting long. So see when you're getting that kind of vibe very early on, mm-hmm. it doesn't really bode well. And I think everything kind of came on top of him at that point. And, you know, and the media, they are what they are. It's uh, The media is the media the world over. You know, you got the English media crucify their national managers, don't they? The mm-hmm. Italian media crucify club managers. And, uh, you know, Scotland in particular, Glasgow is no different. You know, it's it's, it's just a, a football hotbed. It's just a city that loves its football. And if and if you're not performing, then you know you, you will you will get criticised. But uh, as you mentioned, there Barnes actually was kind of performing. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, he came away with an interesting stat that in his short nine months, I think it was nine months, eight, eight or nine months, he actually had a higher win game percentage ratio than Stephen Gerrard had in three years at Rangers. But nobody's interested in that kind of start, are they? No. And he was pointing that out to me when I spoke to him and I thought, wow, that, that's, you know, so I I guess when he felt that there was no longevity in it and he was making phone calls like that to his family to tell them not to move north of the border, then you say to yourself, what, what, what makes you stick it? And I think, going back to what I said, you, you think you can make a difference. You know, John Barnes has had thick skin all his life. Yeah, oh, definitely. All sorts. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I guess this was just another layer of criticism that he, he, he's handled it all his life. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about racism, the full bit. Yeah. Right? So, so this was just another part of, right, a, another facet and strand to John Barnes' life that he probably thought, I've handled worse than this. You know, yeah. I can do this. And I think that's the day. I think deep down, he, he was a football man that wanted to make a difference at a big club. Yeah, he was a wonderfully gifted footballer, and it doesn't necessarily translate that you'll be a wonderfully gifted coach. But I think I, I, I believe after talking to him that that's what he felt that he could make a difference, and he wanted to make a difference because because he loved football and he, and he, he, he had a, a chance in a lifetime and a once in a lifetime opportunity at a huge club as your first managerial job. Yeah, absolutely as well. And I don't think this helped in particular the. The away game against Leon in the UEFA Cup is famous for Henrik Larsson breaking his leg. It wasn't just a, a loss of a massive player, but the last, as you mentioned there, Larsson was the heartbeat of the club. And would you would would it fair to say that this is a kind of spiral of events for that kind of this starts for you? Because losing Larsson, losing that pivotal person is just a massive blow for the whole club and Barnes. It was huge for Barnes as well. See, his luck goes. Barnes had none. Yeah. He had none. No, he, he lost Larson, and I think a couple of weeks later he lost Lambert, didn't he? I think, yeah. But the chronology, they played Leon. Larson broke his leg, was out for the rest of the season, and then they go to Ibrox and they lost the 4 2 game, which was. Yeah, missing. Lambert, yeah. And, and Lambert had the knee in the face from uh, Alberts and lost teeth and the jog. So, as I referred to earlier, he, he lost the glue that was holding that team together. Mm-hmm. So now you're looking at that dressing room, and I, I think. It's nothing short of anarchy now. Yeah, where's the character? Where's the... You know, and guys are... That dressing room are selfish, you know. 
Larson and Lambert were the consummate pros in there. Mm-hmm. So people, if anything else, guys like Burley and those around them, you know, you watch these two and, all right, they're in it for the team. You know, things aren't going well personally for certain individuals, but these two guys are the consummate team players. Do it for the team. So would you mm-hmm. lose that? You lose that influence, then, then you have a team, say a team, you have a fractured unit of players who are now thinking, well, you know, I'm unhappy, you know, and then they're, they're unhappy because the, the the beating heart and the fulcrums of the team are now out of it. Mm-hmm. So now they feel that they feel emboldened that they can say stuff and do stuff and yeah, you know, and Barnes is competing with that and and like everything else for any manager, it's results, isn't it? It's results and ultimately results were Barnes's undoing. I'm not a I'm not negating anything that, that Barnes did. It was a it was a crazy nine months in Celtic's uh, history of which Barnes uh, has to take responsibility because mm. he, he was, ultimately, he was in charge. Yeah, and his, his solution to the, the Larson injury was to bring in an old friend. <laughs> Ian Wright was the kind of short-term replacement. Now we think about Ian Wright, terrific goal scorer, absolutely brilliant goal scorer. This, this stage in his life, He's not the Ian Wright of old, and it's it looks it looks like a a desperate man going to his friend to help him out. But I mean, Ian Wright at this point is his football's kind of passed. That was it. It was at Nottingham Forest and Lowe, and that didn't work out. It was it was more kind of yeah. It was in the television career. So his, his kind of television career it took off at that point. But what did that kind of say? Like losing Larson and bringing in Ian Wright. No disrespect to him, but he was past it. It smacked of an old pal's act, didn't it? Yeah, that's it. Was right. you, you, you cannot get away from that. But I just think that he thought he would get some kind of renaissance out of Ian Wright. Mm-hmm. He'll come and fall in love with the Celtic supporters. You know, the Celtic Football Club, it's an institution. You know, it'll get the football juices flowing for Ian Wright again. And I think there was method in the madness, but it did turn out to be, you know... A, I don't think I think even I don't know how many goals he scored, but I think I he scored his goal. debut. Yeah, scoring against Kilmarnock, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, again, uh, you know, you talk about right players, wrong time. They got him right when he was basically past his sell by date, didn't they? Yeah. And I think he just thought that Ian Wright could come, and I, I, I genuinely think he came as well for, for his influence in the dressing room to give it a lift because mm-hmm. I think it was real doom and gloom there. Mm-hmm. And I remember. Uh, I was working at the record at the time when Ian Wright was unveiled, the journalist who covered it, I can't remember who it was, but I asked him what the press conference was like and he said it was like an audience with Ian Wright. So I think he was brought in to lift that dressing room as well. Yeah, That's a dressing room at low ebb and a character and a wonderful footballer in his day coming in, somebody who could maybe command respect but also lift some of the kind of dark grey clouds that were hovering over it at that time, as you say, with the with the loss of Larson, maybe it was twofold. And if he could get a tune out of him, then he'd want to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, as we as we all saw, it was, you know, it, it did smack of a kind of old pals act and, and possibly desperation. But I, I don't dispute the logic, but you know, you as you saw when Ian Wright turned out for Celtic, his appearances were, were limited, weren't they? And, and mm-hmm. the goals didn't exactly flow. Yeah, and you think about Barnes as well at this point as well. Like he's he's new in a job. He's it's his first 
management job and you do need that backing from the guy that's brought you in and I mean there's the famous thing and I don't know if you remember this and only an excuse they were doing a they were doing a I think Jonathan Watson does the impression of John Barnes and he says at this time and this has stuck with me ever since he says I'll, if I need any help I go to Kenny's office and ask his secretary what golf course he's on that was the that was the mess at the time that was that was getting re- publicised at the time was there this thing about Douglas at the time that it was kind of absent it wasn't as involved as people thought it would be like what do you remember about that around about this time before December yeah I, I remember that sketch you're talking about and you know the, these things don't come into the public domain for without a, a reason or without a yeah. truth to them you know and, and everybody knew that Kendall always liked his golf you know La Manga and all that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. we'll get into that and I just think uh, you know part of me does think that Kendall which was maybe an absentee landlord mm-hmm. and John Barnes had to take all the flack and all the criticism and everything that was coming and I don't know if John Barnes helped himself in, in, in that respect but you know I, John Barnes is no stupid John Barnes knew you had to go in football matches mm-hmm. you know at the end of the day and I, and I think he but I don't think he realised what he was walking into and also the the competitive nature of the club in the same city who were streaking away from them and mm-hmm. at, at, at that point and doing all sorts of, of things and singing all sorts of players. And I, and I just think that he, again, I go back to it, it was his love of football that brought him to Celtic and mm-hmm. the fact that it was such a huge opportunity for your first job. And I think if he knew then what he knew now, he'd maybe not have came to Celtic. No. You know, and, and and you'd be quite right to say you're right, you, you shouldn't have. And, but, it, it, you know, guys are, you feel that you can make a difference. If you're a, a coach newly starting out, you, you want to you want to impress. Mm-hmm. So you'll, put, you'll maybe put up with a lot more than what you, you would have when you become an experienced head coach. And it's that thing as well, and I think this is interesting, you've, you've, you've kind of compared it to the likes of Tommy Burns and things like that. Like, the, when he, that you get an offer like that to manage a massive club, you might never get it again. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it's that thing, and we've seen it later on with kind of Mowbray and things like that. Like you don't get you don't get those opportunities all the time. And you've got to stay on that train when it yeah. comes along at the right time. And also, you've got to know when to get off at the right mm-hmm. time and station as well. But you, you, right, I don't think an offer like that ever came along again for John Barnes. He managed the Jamaican national team. He managed Tranmere, didn't he? Mm-hmm. I think it took him eight years to get a another managerial job because people saw him as damaged goods. Mm-hmm. This and, and and that he get badly burned by the Celtic experience, which is a shame for John Barnes personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, uh, yeah. In the conversation I had, when we still loves the club. We still mm-hmm. love. And he still loves Liverpool and he still loves Everton and he said he loved it because of the supporters. Mm-hmm. The supporters were still incredibly kind to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I, that's fair. I think, the, I think in the years that have you know, elapsed since John Barnes' tenure at the club, I think their understanding and their knowledge of just what exactly went on, no, I, I don't think there's many managers could have coped with that, Scott, to be honest. No, I don't think there is. Even as results do pick up in December. Barnes wins manager of the month and Viduka wins player of the month. There's a lot of positivity that it, <laughs> it, the turn of the millennium could be more positive. But 
a January break in Portugal, I think, reveals that discontent you were talking about in the dressing room. There's problems with Aduka and Maravchik. There's yeah. there's just this massive discontent. What do you remember that at the time? I remember the reporting of it, yeah, because Viduka had said that he'd been promised a transfer by the CEO, Alan McDonald. Mm-hmm. It was a verbal agreement, basically. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Maravchik was complaining about the money that he was on in comparison to he and others. I, I mean, I'm assuming that Lambert and Larson being uh, those, and I think Burley was kind of just unhappy at just John Barnes. Yeah. You know? so, uh, and yeah, so I think... They, they, they went to, yeah, Portugal, and I think they all started fighting. Mm-hmm. There was a big Rami, there, yeah. There was a Rami, as you should, yeah, there was a Rami, and John Barnes confirmed that, and he just said it just got out of hand, and then he, unbeknown to him, he didn't know about Mark Viduka's agreement with mm-hmm. uh, Alan McDonald. So this was all reported, and, you know, all hell started breaking loose, and Rome was burning, and... John Barnes went to McDonald's and said, Mark Viduka said this, please tell me it's not true. And Alan McDonald said, well, actually it is. Mm-hmm. I've them if somebody comes in with a bid of three or four million quid, they can go. Mm-hmm. John Barnes like, well, why would you do that? He, he's a top scorer, he's scoring goals, he's happy starting to play well. And then he was talking about Maravchik and then he, he, he said that he, he appealed to the Celtic board to put all the Celtic players on a, the same a basic wage and then it would be altered on a sliding scale for players like Lambert and Larson yeah have them all on parity and they just they, that fell on deaf ears but, you know but I think there was a, a huge disparity with the like someone half chicken and various others in the team and when we have players who find out what others are on it's always going to lead to unrest isn't it yeah. you know, but that Portugal trip was infamous for as you say, the army that took place. And John mm-hmm. Barnes didn't shy away from me. He was like, yeah, that, that, that did happen. You know, you think maybe you try and cover it up. But he was, he was actually quite <laughs> refreshingly honest and open about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, he went into kind of the details about it. And, you know, Viduka being the big uh, the big talking point of that trip. What about his coaching staff at this point? Like, Eric Black had obviously come in with him and Terry McDermott, who had been given the title, was it social convener or something? Like, no, yeah. there yeah. was... What was that? Do you think that helped him? Like, I know Eric Black, obviously, he knew Scottish football. Do you think maybe an experienced kind of figure like a Tommy Burns would have maybe helped him and come in at that point? I think, I think Black was uh, touted as a coach going places, a mm-hmm. young coming and had great ideas as well. And, you know, so uh, I I don't know, maybe, maybe he was, but I think Eric Black was a good card marker for him, mm-hmm. filling him in with, with stuff, you know, and but the I think the the mood music and the PR surrounding Terry McDermott as social convener, again, that smacked of a job for the boys. And, uh, you know, just, Terry, what is your role? Are you yeah. are you collecting money for nights out? Basically, is that, is that are you trying to, you know, so, uh, the, the, you know, and, and that's no slick. Terry McDermott was another one who was a, a fantastic footballer. Yeah. But you look at his... You look at his tenure or his kind of, you know, employment at Celtic and you think, what did you actually do? What did yeah. you bring to the table? And I don't think anybody before or since has been able to enlighten me what he actually did. I'd like to think that Terry McDermott had a, a good coaching knowledge from being a fantastic footballer, but it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't always necessarily translate. But, 
you look at Terry McDermott and you think, that's a guy that got paid probably large sums of money to not bring much to the table. You know, Black was different. Black had done his coaching badges at large in the SFA and was seen as a a young, up-and-coming, you know, good technical uh, football coach. So I could understand that. Maybe John Barron needed somebody, I, I guess you'd say, with more experience and someone who was more aware of the Celtic uh, thing. You know, like a Tommy Burns, like, you know, like a Danny McGrain. Yeah. But I mean, surely that person or the conduit uh, should have been Kenny DeWish. Mm-hmm. But then go back to how often was Kenny there? Mm-hmm. Was there. So, you know, Kenny DeWish should have been that person. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And as you say, when you've got an absentee landlord and you've got a manager, again, that's, it's the earliest, like, Mentally, he must have been pickled. Like it must have been like he's what he's dealing with. What the big personalities. I mean, Mavaduk is a big personality. I don't think like you've you've just got that kind of distance. And as we say, they come back from the Portugal trip and league campaign resumes, and Celtic draw with Kilmarnock and then throw away a two goal lead to lose at home to Hearts. And I think obviously the turning point, the the untenable position becomes after the Inverness game, but. When you're 2-0 down, down to Hearts and you lose 3-2, I mean, the fans were disgruntled then and I think that was yeah. a massive turning point for the, a lot of the support who had, I think, obviously, want, you don't want a manager to ever fail at particularly a club like Celtic, but when you see that and you see the kind of gutless performance of losing three goals, it's it's but it's never it never ends well for that point. Yeah, when you're chipping away two goals to Hearts at home, mm. then serious questions are getting asked. And then again... All, all that, you know, the cheat into that. He's lost the dressing room. I don't think John Barnes ever gained the Celtic dressing room. Yeah. It was it was the definite case of paradise lost from the moment John Barnes stepped into the manager's shoes, which is a shame for him. And, you know, and it was reflected in the fact that he struggled to get, you know, future employment down the line after he left Celtic and the whole experience. Uh, you know, it burned him a wee bit, but again, he still loves the club, but, you know, that Hearts game was quickly followed by the Inverness tobacco, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And John Barnes admits himself that once you lose to Inverness in the Scottish Cup, you, you have to get sacked. Mm-hmm. There is no, you're not coming back from that. Mm-hmm. The circumstances surrounding it, again, with Mark Viduka being the protagonist and Eric Black saying to him after the first half, you know, you're just running around and you're not trying. And Viduka has taken that to mean that Eric Black was calling him a cheat. And he has lost it. Mm-hmm. And again, that dressing room, holy hell breaks loose in that dressing room, which leads to Viduka throwing his boots across the floor and I'm not going out for the second half. And, you know, I, and see when you hear that story, I, I, I don't, can't remember or recall another instance of a player refusing to come out, I mean, literally refused to come out to play the second half, told the manager, that's it, wanted to fight with people. And I get, and I get that players are fragile egos, but my goodness. And, and that's the thing, Eric Black has come out since and said that he'd done that to provoke a reaction from Baduka. Yeah. But it wasn't the reaction he, he got, like he, he thought he was going to get, and that speaks of this lack of kind of, understanding in the dressing room at this point. Well, not that I'm saying Viduka, Viduka's totally wrong, but Black I mean, should have known. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, uh, probably 
not wise, but if you're, you know, the, I think at that point, were they losing? At that they were 2-1 down at half time, yeah. So usually in those kind of circumstances, you're heading for a, you know, a, a, a humiliating exit. You would pick on a big personality and say, get the finger out. Or, mm-hmm. To make an example, to make some kind of, you know, statement type halftime team talk, you know, and as you say, get the reaction. Well, come on, let's show them. But Matt Viduk has taken it personally and made it all about him. And that's what the Celtic team was about back then. It was all about the individuals. Mm-hmm. Could you tell? Could you tell that night? Obviously, it finished three one Inverness. Could you tell that night that that's the dream team was was over? Oh, that was that was the ultimate nightmare. For me. He had to go, mm-hmm. and and also as well. I mean, the, the headline that followed. Yeah. In the tabloid, you know, super Cali goes ballistic. Celtic are atrocious. You know, I, he, they were. You know, in terms of the, the small pool that we're living, but they were a laughing stock, Celtic. Mm. And, and things can only go so far before, you know, people have to step in and take charge and make kind of decisions and say, right, enough's enough. And that that was a, that was John Barnes' idea, wasn't it? It was just mm. that was that was it reached the end point. And, yeah. and to be fair to John Barnes, John Barnes himself said that when the end came, it was a relief. Mm-hmm. And he, he doesn't hide from the fact that that was a terrible result. To his, Inverness were in the first division at that time, weren't they? Mm-hmm. The championship, as it's now known, and they gave Celtic a weapon at Celtic Park. And they're only they're only like five or six years from being founded, like as merging yeah. together kind of thing. Like it shows you, it's a a massive result and one that I think I I think it's untenable at this point. But the director of football, you would think he would be in a stand for a game like that. Do you remember where he was? No, I don't remember. Where was he? He was in a golfing scouting holiday in La Manga. I was in La Manga. Well, I was going to say La Manga, but he, he was forever in La Manga, so I thought maybe he was somewhere different. But yeah. And yeah, you know, and again, that just sort of, it was kind of microcosmic of the time at Celtic, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. That just seemed to be riddled with unprofessionalism mm-hmm. and just rank bad amateurism and, and in the day-to-day running of the football club, club which stretched from, you know, boardroom level down to players mm-hmm. and the supporters then turning on the team, the, the unrest and it that was just prevalent at the time amongst everybody. Douglas obviously summoned back to to take control of that situation and he has meetings with the staff and McDonald and the chairman at the time, but it's announced the day after that. John Barnes, Eric Black and Terry McDermott will all leave the club. Was there doubts that Douglas would stay on at this point? Was there was there like was there fans wanting Douglas away well, at this point, or was there? I think there was fans just wanting anybody other than John Barnes. Because mm-hmm. just they they just had their filler John Barnes and they just weren't enjoying what they were watching. So anybody coming in to steady the ship, and as I say. Kenny still had some credit in the bank with the Celtic supporters, so and he proven himself as a manager. So if he <coughs> can sort of steal the ship to the end of the season and take it from there and, and see what would transpire, then surely something would have to give. As it turned out, it did. But I, I just think that the whole Barnes episode left a similar taste in everybody's mouth, the fans, Barnes to a certain extent, although he's now a bit more uh, you know, he speaks more openly about it and he's a bit more philosophical about it. 
laterally, but I, I just, it was a real, in years to come, they'll do fascinating case studies on this, won't they? They'll, they'll be like, university papers are like, <laughs> this is written about this time and uh, the time when Celtic blew 10 in a row mm-hmm. uh, under Neil Lennon and stuff. No, there'll be a like, compare and contrast exercise kind of thing, you know, with the, the unrest and all that. Uh, I just think there's kind of similar themes running through it in, in Celtic's history at certain times, but I, and, and exacerbated by the fact that Rangers were doing so well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was uh, that kind of, and you did, you did feel for Barnes, but again, Celtic put him in that position. And it's, and he said himself, it's almost as if they put him in a position to fail. Mm-hmm. And Douglas, obviously, after that, it kind of puts the blame in the media as well. It's saying like the, the media never gave him the support. And, <laughs> That was a famous time that Dobish was doing the press conferences in Baird's Bar and things like that. Like just strange, oh, yeah. and to, to think about that, so strange to think. And that's that's what a, a lot of Celtic supporters were conflicted with Dobish as well, because I think Kenny Dobish took Celtic to a, a position in that point in time that no football club should ever be. And I I was on a plane to Florida covering the Scottish Claymores and Dominic Dominic Keane. Former Livingston owner. Yeah, yeah. He was on the same flight. Mm-hmm. He stepped off the flight and he turned to me because I knew Dominic Keane really well because I covered Livingston a lot. Yeah. He said, Tony, you'll never guess where Kenny Lewis has held Celtic's press conference for the Rangers game. And I said, Where? He said, Guess. I said, I'll never guess. And you're going to shock me here. And the next two words that came out of his mouth, my jaw just hurt the floor. <laughs> I sat down, at, I think we were G. Yeah, Florida, airport in Florida, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I sat and I just slumped in a chair. Bird's bar. And, I, and I, I was just like, wow. And I experienced it myself because I covered the last press conference of Kenny Lablish's reign at Celtic Park. They were playing Dundee United. And I think Larson came back to play in that last game of the season. And we were in the... We were in the Celtic. Did we go to this? I don't think we went. There wasn't a Bears Bar or a social club, but I'm sure it was Celtic Park. And we were sitting and fans were in beside you. Mm-hmm. And so you would ask a question of Kenny Dalglish and fans would say, don't answer that, Kenny. That's a loaded question. They've got an agenda. Stuff like that. And, you know, and to, you know, I... I was a young guy at that point. I just started out in the record. I was I'd started in '99. Mm-hmm. That was quite intimidating for a young guy like myself, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, you did kind of feel it, and you felt that kind of real hostility between Kenny Dalglish and the media and Celtic as a club in general, which is never the way it should be. They they all, they all should always exist in tandem. Rules get broken and they, they get bent, and I understand that. And people. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, individuals may, in the, in the club's viewpoint, step out of line, but that's up to the entity with that at the time. Mm-hmm. But that, that was quite a, an intimidating atmosphere, and I don't think uh, I don't think anybody emerged with any credit from that at all, mm-hmm. let, let alone uh, Kane of Leash and Celtic. But to put that kind of pressure uh, on the media and... Now you've seen the advent of fan media mm-hmm. getting into pressers and all that, so uh, uh, which is a which is a really good thing. I'm I'm, I'm all for that, and but I I still think that fan media 
and Scottish mainstream media can also exist in tandem. Mm-hmm. They can do the, the, their respective jobs and mm-hmm. be, you know, and be and get along and be cordial with each other. And you know, because I, I just feel that that that's a particular poor episode in Celtic's history that kind of least took press conferences to Bears Barn. I just think that's conduct unbecoming of a club like Celtic and it's conduct unbecoming of a man holding that high esteemed office of, of the manager of Celtic Football Club. And I get what he was trying to do, bring the club closer to the fans, but there are ways, there are many better ways and means of doing that. I just think that's a, that's a real law it's actually taken, regardless of what you feel about any media person, uh, I don't think they should have to run that gauntlet of turning up at pubs and social clubs uh, and, 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 and get a, a verbal abuse for only only trying to do the job. You know, journalists like yourself and myself, uh, we're only trying to do a, a job and you know, it's hard at times and just do an honesty job on his There's a lot of wonderful, wonderful journalists out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're, they're normal people. They, they, they are families, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they need to earn money. And it's regardless of, you know, football fans' particular prejudices or, or, or whatever they want to call it towards certain members of the media, then that's fine. But I don't think, I don't think kind of least did anything to resolve any kind of conflict that Celtic had with the media at that time. No, absolutely not. And as you say, it it spoke of this kind of disconnect that Douglas had and Celtic behind the scenes are a shambles at this point, to be honest. I mean, it ends in a trophy. There's very few times where a, a project like this that falls flat ends with a trophy. But I want to touch on like after this, because it's clear that Douglas hasn't taken the job permanently and Alan McDonald and his kind of crew of kind of people in the boardroom, they're looking to to bring in a new manager. They famously go and speak to Goose Hiddink at yeah. Real Betis, but Dermot Desmond is, and this is the first time we kind of Dermot Desmond kind of gets involved, I would say, and he's working on a different list of candidates, and he speaks to Martin O'Neill. What was your kind of opinion at the time? Who did you think was going to get a job? Like, when what was that like to kind of cover when like there was this disconnect? Because one t- one papers get. Goose Hiddink's going to be the next manager and then you've got another one saying Dermot Desmond's going to appoint this person himself and and he wasn't really mentioned until later on but that showed you just how split this situation is. What it did show me was that they were determined on getting the next appointment right. Mm -hmm. The Goose Hiddink, Goose Chase, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the Daily Record sent a journalist over to find them and I think other papers did the same and turned out to be a red herring mm-hmm. and he, he wasn't getting a job but I think at that particular time Celtic supporters was just delighted that the club were finally showing some ambition mm-hmm. and dragged themselves as far away from the could from the past few months of the Barnes experience and the Kenny Lee's Birds Bar experience because bearing in mind that the Birds Bar was before a Rangers game which they get cuffed for nothing in, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, so everything that could have gone wrong, went wrong, did go wrong, and uh, you know a poor black kind of period in the history of the club, and 
best forgotten. She's why it's never really spoken about, is it? Mm-hmm. Unless you do something like this. Do you think that's because Anil Kamani completely turned it round? Do you think that's because well, it? And I, and I think the the whole fact that, as I say there, I, something had to give. You know, people at the top had to get involved because the club was lurching from one crisis to another and mm-hmm. being, you know, a laughing stock. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Beat by Inverness Cali, people with a right good laugh. Taking press conference to, to bars, you know, journalists being escorted from premises stuff. Yeah. Like that, you know, <coughs> it's just no way to conduct your business. But they were doing it. They were basically airing their dirty linen in public, you know. And I, and I think Celtic as a club, just you know, it was a road that uh, they should never have gone down, but they did. And then I think Dermot Desmond had sort of said, <coughs> "Enough is enough," and he uh, personally oversaw. Uh, the employment of the new manager and then when Martin and Neil came in you you got the feeling there was a you know Celtic meant business mm-hmm. you know when he stood in the steps that yeah, day, that's... said famously said I will do everything in my power to bring success to this football club and there's a voice you can hear a lone voice that shout that's all we want Martin mm-hmm. summed up the feelings of the fans yeah all they wanted was a team in the park that won trophies and was successful all the rest all the kind of backroom noise and turmoil and strife you know they could do without it and and it's quite telling that because it's quite a it's quite a pivotal moment in Scottish football history in terms of the the seismic shift and balance and power mm-hmm. that happened after that and everybody got on board Larson and Lambert got on board you know and uh, the players that he brought in certain Hearts and Lennon, you know, he had Petrov there, he had Maravchik, and he moulded them into this team that ultimately, I mean, within four years of John Barnes leaving Celtic in the UEFA Cup final. I know, it's crazy. European final in, in uh, 30, 33 years, mm-hmm. it's So you look at that and you think that happened four years after the turmoil of the Barnes Douglas era. So you see yourself. You know, and again, so what went on during that era that we didn't know about? Why did it take something so monumentally significant in bringing in, you know, Martin O'Neill for it all to be flipped on its head? Mm-hmm. When the, the raw ingredients were there, where a lot of the players were okay, Martin brought in a lot of players and he spent a lot of money and he was granted maybe a lot of tools that some other Celtic managers weren't fortunate, but I think that. They, they'd had enough and they, they just kind of decided that they meant business or that certainly Dermot Desmond did. Mm. It's a really fascinating period in Celtic's history and it's been a, a pleasure to go through it with you, Anthony. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, pleasure to be mine, Scott. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much to everyone that's tuned in. We will be back on the next episode of The Rewind as we look at Vladimir Romanov's time as Hearts owner. Thank you very much to everyone who's tuned in. Really appreciate it.